Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's family stories include an IRA man who ended up fighting for Britain and being torpedoed twice, a Scot who spent five years as a prisoner of war, a teenage sailor who braved the Atlantic and the U-boats, and a pilot who never forgave his enemy. We begin this week with this story from Jim Roach. My mother and father were born in West Cork. Paddy was a young IRA volunteer before joining the Royal Navy. He was arrested under the Free State Government and spent some time in Kilmainham Prison in Dublin before being released as underage. Following his enlistment, he was sunk by the Germans off Norway and by the Japanese off Malaya. Very few Royal Navy sailors were sunk by both Germans and Japanese, and I'd bet no former IRA volunteers were sunk by both. My father was born on a small farm in Kill, outside Macroom. He was proud to have been in the old IRA and became the adjutant of the West Court Battalion as a teenager. When Paddy was released from jail as a 16-year-old, he joined the Navy. The Royal Navy was seen as a way out in those days, since they hadn't been involved against the IRA. So, he wangled a reference and joined up for 12 years in 1937. Twelve days after Britain declared war, Paddy married my mother, Sheila. She remembered being married on a Friday, then Paddy went off to sea on Sunday. A very short honeymoon. He was posted to HMS Curlew, an anti-aircraft ship, escorting convoys to Norway. On one convoy, Paddy was transfixed by a diving Stuka. He could see the pilot's goggles but couldn't move and was pulled into cover by another sailor just before the bomb hit. HMS Curley was sunk on Sunday the 26th of March. As she was going down, Paddy dropped out of his hammock and found himself up to his chest in Arctic water in darkness. The watertight door from his compartment was jammed and the water was rising. He tried to escape through a shell hole but became wedged. Finally, he was pulled through by a Maltese steward who tied him to a barrel and threw him into the sea. His face was badly cut. When he was pulled from the sea, he was given rum to revive him. He spluttered he was a pioneer, a Catholic group committed to total abstinence from alcohol, but was told to take the rum as medicine. That was the end of the pioneers. Paddy was given six weeks survivor's leave and went home to Sheila, who was a fire watcher at night during the Blitz in London. Their house was burgled while Paddy and Sheila were in a shelter and his only civilian suit was stolen. So much for the Blitz spirit. In October, Sheila moved to Birkenhead so that she could be near Paddy, who'd been assigned to HMS Prince of Wales. On the 24th of May, 1941, Prince of Wales and the battlecruiser HMS Hood engaged the Bismarck and heavy cruiser Prince Eugen. The Hood was sunk and Prince of Wales damaged, but not before Prince of Wales struck Bismarck with three of her 14-inch shells. Paddy was at his action station in the engine room. He remembered being terrified that they were sinking as the ship suddenly began to list sharply. 
After repairs in Rosyth, the Prince of Wales carried Winston Churchill to Newfoundland to meet President Roosevelt for the Atlantic Conference in August 1941. On their return, Churchill asked to be sailed past the ships in the convoy, back and forward while waving to the cheering crews. In October, the Prince of Wales left Greenock, destined for the Far East. The ship was badly designed and the heat below decks was intense. The surgeon commander limited shifts to two hours. Paddy recalled the stokers would work naked and emerge from the engine room exhausted after only two hours and collapse around the hatch to sleep. The day after Japan declared war, on December the 8th, Prince of Wales and Repulse, in company with the destroyers Tenedos Electra Express and HMAS Vampire, left Singapore to intercept a reported Japanese invasion fleet. On December the 10th, in the South China Sea, the Japanese attacked with torpedo bombers. Prince of Wales was steaming at 25 knots when nine Bettys appeared low on her port bow. Men on the upper deck watched in horror as the tracks of the torpedoes closed in. Suddenly there was a tremendous explosion. Paddy's action station was in a damaged control centre between the two propeller shafts when the torpedo hit. As a direct result of the stern torpedo hit, the Prince of Wales took on more than 18,000 tonnes of water. The wall of Paddy's control centre began to buckle. Their officer had already deserted his station, leaving the men alone, so they decided to leave too. Paddy's station for abandoned ship was to man the scrambling nets near the bow and to release them before the ship went down so as to avoid them floating out and entangling swimming sailors. He misjudged this and became entangled in the wire cables after diving in. He was pulled down and described the warm tropical water being very cold and completely black. Just in time he struggled free and swam to the surface where he was rescued by one of the escorts and with the other survivors returned to Singapore. Few sailors escaped the fall of Singapore in February 1942, but Paddy was lucky. He left as a stoker on one of the last old steamers to get out. Sheila was now in Fife. On May the 30th, she received a telegram from Australia asking, please send me eight pounds. On returning to the UK in 1944, Paddy was sent to LST 3009, which was destined for the Pacific to fight the Japanese. A landing ship tank could carry 18 Shermans and more than an infantry company. Paddy was one of the most experienced sailors aboard. The LSTs were to land on Japanese-held islands, and LST-3009 was readied for a landing with tanks and infantry on board when the Japanese surrendered. The authorities decided that the landing should go ahead anyway so as to unload the men and equipment to take control. As she ran up the beach, the LST hit a palm tree which stopped the bow doors opening. Because of the full load of tanks, she could not pull back on the kedge anchor. Had the landing been opposed, LST 3009 would have been a very large target under fire and unable to move. And I wouldn't be here. Paddy returned to Britain in 1946 and he and Sheila settled in Dunfermline. They had two sons and now have three grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. Best wishes, Jim Roach. Our next story comes from Bill Robertson. Dear Alan James, when I was little and poring over my copies of Victor, Warlord and Battle, 
My mum used to tell me that her granddad had been Douglas Bader's Batman and Colditz. When she heard I was researching the family, she mentioned that his war diary was in Stirling Castle. Intrigued, I emailed the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders Museum and they confirmed they had a diary. It was the start of six years of research. John was born in Glasgow in 1899 before moving to Stirling. During the Great War, his dad and older brother both volunteered. John's brother was killed in France in March 1917. John was conscripted a month later and, like his brother, went into the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders. He saw service in France before returning home to his pre-war job as a coal miner. He married and started a family, eventually ending up with six kids, but with war clouds gathering once more, he signed up to the TA and became a member of the Seventh Argyles in 1936. With the outbreak of war, John was promoted to Lance Corporal. By January 1940, the Argyles occupied positions on the Maginot Line. While the main body of the BEF was pushed back to Dunkirk, the Argyles, along with the rest of the 51st Highland Division, found themselves on the Somme, awaiting the next German offensive. They were given the task of defending a village called Franlu, near Abbeville. On the 5th of June they were attacked. Mortar fire rained down on their positions as the Germans began their assault. John was in A Company. Unfortunately, the company commander, Captain Handley, was mortally wounded by a sniper, and his truck took a direct hit from a mortar round. The Argyles were strung out over a wide front, and the Germans were able to surround each company. A Company, under the command of Lieutenant Fisher, was cut off and fought on alone into the next day. By the afternoon, however, the Germans decided to mop up this small pocket of resistance. Repeated attacks were made under heavy mortar fire. Each time the Germans were thrown back. Around 4.30pm, a final determined assault was made. Three German officers and several other ranks were shot dead within 20 yards of the company headquarters. But with their ammunition gone, Lieutenant Fisher ordered the men to destroy their weapons, and they surrendered. The Argyles had started the battle with 32 officers and 736 men. By the end, they had lost 23 officers and over 500 men killed, wounded or missing. It was to be the start of a journey into five years in German hands for John. The next part of the story I was able to piece together from a brief account John wrote in his YMCA logbook. I remember feeling emotional as I stood in the museum, leafing through this fragile artefact, reading what had happened to him. John, POW number 265, was marched through France, Belgium and Holland to the Rhine. From there they boarded barges to Bavaria. John described the four days on the barges as worse than hell. The men were riddled with lice and given no food or water. John was sent along with many of his fellow surviving Argyles to a stalag at Bud Sulza near Weimar. According to the Red Cross, he arrived on the 1st of July 1940, a month after his capture. While officers and NCOs were forbidden from working by the Geneva Convention, no such protection was afforded men below the rank of corporal. John was sent to Arbeitskommando 1401 and set to work in a salt mine. As he put it, he was given... A pick and a shovel to work for the fatherland. After their journey, he described himself as being in a very weak and sad condition after all the tramping and marching we had come through, with very little to put in our stomach, as we had no meals off the jerrys through one month on the march. At this point, John's account of his captivity ended, and the rest of his time as a POW had to be figured out from his photographs, snippets of dates and place names in his journal, and various books and Red Cross records. 
John was transferred through a couple of camps and it seems as if he volunteered to be an orderly, which would explain his being in a series of officers' camps. In Warburg, he may have worked for Cretan General Solon Kafatos, a distinguished veteran. It was Kafatos who provided the wool for his famous Fuck Hitler sampler, which hung in plain sight of the Germans without them realising the message. Kafatos left a personal message in John's diary. Records show that John remained at Warburg until September 1942, when he was transferred to Oflag Schubin in Poland. In March 1943, a mass escape of 35 officers from Schubin took place via a tunnel. The escape was masterminded by Wing Commander Harry Day, who would later help plan the great escape from Stalagluf III. Day is one of a number of famous escapers who appear in John's logbook, and he was held in several of the same camps at the same time as John. In the run-up to the escape, a young RAF officer called Peter Lovegrove was killed while trying to map out the terrain around the camp. He fell from a window and died. There are photographs of the funeral contained in John's logbook. As a result of the escape attempt, the camp was closed in April 1943, and all prisoners, including John, were sent to Stalag Luft III. As well as photos, the logbook records the names and addresses of several of his fellow prisoners. Among them were writer and broadcaster Robert Key and Colin Hodgkinson, an amputee fighter pilot. I wonder if my mum heard him talking about Colin Hodgkinson when she was growing up and conflated it with the story of Douglas Bader. Certainly Bader was in several of the camps at the same time as John, but I've yet to find anything definitively linking them. Meanwhile, John's brother Michael had been serving with the Royal Engineers in North Africa. He'd returned to the UK in March 1944. On the 14th of June, he put his rifle to his head and ended his life. I don't know when this news reached John, but it must have been a heavy blow. John remained at Stalagluf III until the end of July 1944. He was in the camp during the famous Great Escape, but I have no idea whether he was involved. He was transferred once more, but when the Red Army approached, he was part of a mass evacuation of prisoners, possibly on a hospital train. His final stop was a stalag at Fallingbostel until the camp was liberated by the 7th Armoured Division on April 16th, 1945. He was back home in Stirling just over a week later. John returned to civilian life and worked as a storeman after leaving the mines. He died in 1978. I thought of him often when feeling sorry for myself during lockdown. He was 40 when the war broke out and I was the same age when I started to retrace his story. I remind myself that if Johnny could march across Europe with a gun on his back, and survive five years as a POW, then surely I can get through this. Keep up the good work, Bill Robertson. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. 
We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Our next story is from Ian Whitehouse. I first met Dennis Whedon, my father-in-law, in August 1988. I was executive officer on HMS Trafalgar at the time, a nuclear-powered submarine. Dennis's first words, as my wife explained my background, were, That's interesting. I was torpedoed twice during the war. Dennis joined the British Tanker Company, aged 16, in September 1941. He was an apprentice with ambition to become Merchant Navy officer. In May 42, Dennis was sent to join the Empire Corporal, his second ship, where he met a fellow apprentice, David Tuckett, who remains a friend to this day. In August, they crossed the Atlantic again and then formed part of a return convoy. They were 100 miles off Cuba when the Empire Corporal was torpedoed on the morning of the 15th of August. Dennis had the morning watch with the chief officer. The weather was clear with good visibility. He spotted what he initially thought to be two porpoises on the starboard bow. Turned out, said Dennis, it wasn't a porpoise but the bloody torpedo that sunk us. This was the stern torpedo fired from U-598. It hit the engine room and the ship sunk within ten minutes. Dennis's action station was to look after the starboard lifeboat. However, his first action was to run down from the wheelhouse deck and alert David, who was off watch and asleep. I shouldn't have done this, but I did, he said. He did it by stamping on the deck and shouting down a ventilation shaft, Dave, Dave, abandon ship, we've been torpedoed. Dennis made his way to the lifeboat and helped launch it, but the lifeboat was carried to port across the ship's deck, narrowly missing the rigging and masts. At one stage it threatened to fall on the lifeboat which prompted the ship's gunner, Gunner Edwards, and one other to jump out of the lifeboat. Neither of them survived. In total, five crew and one gunner were lost. The survivors were picked up and taken to Guantanamo Bay, where Dennis spent much of the time watching films at an open-air cinema and enjoying US Navy food. He was unable to send any message home, but knows that his mother received a telegram saying that his ship was missing, and then another telegram ten days later saying he'd arrived safely on land. He was shipped home in November 1942, and received orders to join British Fortitude the following month. Two months later, 
and Dennis was torpedoed again, this time in mid-Atlantic. Dennis was off watching his cabin when the ship was attacked by U-202 and hit by a single torpedo. The crew gathered on the wheelhouse deck after the attack in case they had to abandon ship, but the ship didn't sink and was able to keep up with the convoy and make it to Tampa Shipyard for full repairs. Thanks and best wishes. Ian Whitehouse Our final story this week is from Philip Ford. Back in the mid-90s, I was conducting historical analysis for the MOD. One project was analysis of the Meridian operations, which took place in January 1945. There was a fleet air arm pilot called Major Cheese Cheeseman I was keen to talk to. He'd been a Battle of Britain pilot and by 1945 was flying fireflies. Before I tried to make contact, I was briefed by the chief naval historian at the MOD library, Whitehall. A word of warning to you, this man doesn't know political correctness and he screams effing Jap bastards when referring to the Japanese. So be warned. The reason for this was he went into the water on the sinking of the Dorsetshire. He was the ship's walrus pilot and along with the others in the water, he was machine gunned by Japanese pilots. From that day, he developed a burning hatred bordering on the pathological of the Japanese. He was an interesting man. He saved the lives of the survivors of a torpedoed merchantman. He was flying from a naval base in West Africa and saw men in the water clinging to an upturned boat. About a mile away he saw another lifeboat empty and adrift. He landed the walrus, swam to the boat and towed it to the mile to where the sailors were. They were later picked up. All the best, Philip Ford. That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the podcast, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com. That's wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com. Or leave it on the family members site under the family stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Thank you for listening and bye for now.